Hello and welcome to part one of episode three of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation and me, your host, Dr. Isla Hodgson. Every episode, I pitch your questions about sharks and their underwater habitat to a panel of marine experts and conservationists from all over the world. Now, usually we take a deep dive into one specific question, but this week I have a treat for all of you shark nerds out there because we are answering not one, but seven questions. And all of these questions relate to sharks at extremes. So we'll be finding out about the largest sharks in the world, the smallest, the longest living, the fastest, and taking a deep dive into the deep sea where we'll meet some sharks that, yes, glow in the dark. Now, for a bumper episode jam-packed with shark facts, I needed some very special guests. And today, we are incredibly lucky to have Jada Elcock, Amani Weber-Schultz, and Megan Hulst joining me on the podcast. I honestly cannot think of three better people to nerd out with about some of our weirdest and most wonderful shark species because not only are they incredible scientists studying different aspects of shark ecology, physiology and conservation, but they are also queens of science communication. So you've probably come across Jada on TikTok where she's famous for her hilarious animal facts videos. And also, Amani and Megan co-host the Sharkpedia podcast, where they break down science with legendary shark researchers. And not only that, but they are also advocates for diversity and equality in the marine sciences. And they do some incredibly important work with their individual organisations. So Armani and Jada are two of the four founding members of Minorities in Shark Sciences. And Megan is co-founder of Minorities in Aquarium and Zoo Sciences. As always, there will be links to everything in the show notes. So please, please, please go and check out the work that they do. I was so excited to have these ladies on the podcast and chat about their different roles, as well as, of course, the strange and fascinating world of sharks. It was such a fun episode that we ended up talking for quite a while, so we've decided to split this episode into a part one and a part two. So this episode will talk about the largest, smallest and fastest sharks in the world and find out all about Armani, Megan and Jada's research. And you'll have to stay tuned next week to find out more about our amazing guests, as well as sharks in the deep sea and whether sharks are poisonous. But today we've got a lot of ground to cover, so grab your snorkels and let's dive in. Hi guys, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having us. So no, excited to so be happy here. to be here. No, thank you for being here. And um, we're just, I'm just super excited to kind of nerd out about sharks with you, with you all. But um, before we kind of get into our question, I sort of wanted to talk about you. Um, so can you just very quickly explain to our listeners where in the world you are today? So Megan, if we can start with you. Sure. Yeah, I'm in San Francisco, California. So I'm right on the west coast of the United States on the Pacific Ocean. Uh, which is great. My field site is not too far from me. Awesome. Jada? I am in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. I am on the opposite end of the country. Um, And my field station is also very close to me. Honestly, I just got to get out in the boat and go and hopefully find some sharks. Um, But yeah, very much looking forward to the field work I'm going to be doing this summer. And Amani? 
I am located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So all the way across from Megan and like right below Jada. <laughs> um, and my field work currently has been in Florida. So I do not get to just go outside and go see the sharks like Megan and Jada do. I get to get on a plane and fly down to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's pretty it's it's a pretty sweet deal having your field work site like right on your doorstep. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think one thing this has taught me already is just how tiny Scotland is, which is where I live. Um so you can literally be across the country in about five hours. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like not yeah. even the size of one of our states. I was I gonna know. say yeah. like I can do that with Arizona, like go from the top to the bottom, like in like six hours or something like that that's oh hilarious goodness. yeah that's craziness wow wait i'm shook that's because so okay so megan megan is in the san francisco bay area which is where i grew up and if you mm. drive five hours like north or south and even really to the east you're still in california yeah by like another depending where like three to six hours yeah it's a really long <laughs> state <laughs> yeah i love it yeah, but we, we typically like to start the podcast with what I've learned is a really, really difficult question, um, which is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? And every time I ask this to one of the guests, they kind of look at me in, in absolute fear at having to pick one of their favorite experiences. But um, but yeah, if you guys could tell me, you know, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? Um, okay, I'm going to go with my first ocean memory. Um which was when I was, I believe, three or four. We went to the, we went to Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. Um, and we were on, we like did a whole bunch of stuff while we were there. I have memories of like seeing the tortoises and running from the tortoises because they were as tall as me. And like it, that striked actual fear in me. I was like, the tortoise <laughs> is gonna eat me. And this is something that I still remember at the age of 23. So obviously it was traumatizing. Um, <laughs> we were on a boat and I had, this like this like little tiny like fishing boat um because i think like we took we took a larger like ferry and then you get on a smaller boat to go to one of the islands um and i had a purple like baseball hat on and it flew off of my head into the water and the memory that i have is not it flying off of my head but looking down and like watching the hat sink and then seeing all these like crazy vibrant colored fish like so like the brightest orange ever and blue and pink and like all of this amazing color um and just like not even remembering that my hat was in the ocean but just like looking at all of these fish um underneath like the amazingly blue waves that we were seeing um and then next thing i know this guy took his fishing rod and fished my hat out he like somehow dropped the fishing rod and let the hook go all the way down and hooked my hat like mid water column and pulled it back up and then i had like a wet hat for the day um what that's like, i know How i know I never it's heard like this story this is amazing isn't that crazy um and that's like my first ocean memory and it's like so like it, like i was so young and i still remember like every little bit and piece of it i could if i was a good artist i could probably draw like what i saw yeah i mean there's a couple of things that just jumped out to me there the first one is how incredible that you went to those places at the age of three and four like yeah mine must have been blown and secondly what a roller coaster of emotions so first of all you lose your hat very sad but then you see all these amazing fish and like mine's just blown at these like this incredible environment that you've never seen before and then all of a sudden guy rescues your hat 
with a rod and reel. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a hero. <laughs> yeah. Jada, how about you? What was your most memorable experience in the ocean? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in landlocked states. I grew up in Illinois, which was many, many hours from a coastline. And then I grew up in, I moved to Arizona when I was 10, which is still very many miles from a coastline. At least in Illinois, we had like Lake Michigan. Arizona is just the middle of the desert. So I like had nothing. I think my first experience with the ocean, I was probably, if I had to guess like 12 or 13. So I was, I mean, I was older, um, but I think probably my favorite experience was I was 16 and my family and I went on vacation to California with a bunch of our family friends. Um, we rented this house like on the beach and the only reason we could afford to do so because it was very expensive because California was because we had like five families with us. We all just kind of crammed into this one little house, but it was great. <laughs> um, and I remember I was going out and I was like boogie boarding with my brothers and then my dad's friend and it was so much fun. And I felt an animal touch my foot and I like freaked out only because I couldn't see what was below me. So I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a stingray or if it was a shark or if it was just a fish, or if it was seaweed, but I was like, it feels slimy. So I thought it was a stingray. I was like, guys, I felt an animal. I don't know what it was, but I felt something. And my brothers were like, no, it's just seaweed. You're overreacting. You're just paranoid. And then like two seconds later, it goes past Danny. My dad's friend goes past Danny's foot and he goes, oh no, I felt it. That was definitely an animal. And I was like, I was right. Aha. And then it was fine. And we just kept boogie boarding for a while. And it was a great time, but it was so much fun to just like be in the ocean. And then when we were walking back to shore, um, super shallow, I think my brother saw like a, a baby guitar fish. Um, I didn't see it, which I'm so, I'm so angry that I didn't see it. I'm always the person that's like in the car that Someone's like, oh, look, a deer. And I'm like, where is it? And then we're already past it. And I never end up seeing it. So of course it would happen to me in the ocean too. But like, I was like, wow, I was so close to a guitar fish. And then it was really cool because later um, I interned at Odyssey Aquarium in Scottsdale, Arizona, and they had three guitar fish and I got to teach them how to eat from a target. And so I got to have that experience and finally come all the way around. And I was like, I got to see guitar fish. Ah, it was so much fun. <laughs> you also get, you also taught them how to eat from a target, did you say? Yes. Okay, we need to, okay. There's a, <laughs> there's a few things that I want to touch on in that story. But first of all, can you tell us how you go about training a guitar fish to eat from a target? Yeah, so basically you make a target that's, I mean, waterproof, obviously. You don't want it to be like cardboard or something. But then you just kind of dunk it in the water and... Um, at the beginning they're like I don't know what this is so the closer they come to it um, if they come within like whatever your distance is that you determined I said like two feet then you reward them with food and they're like oh awesome okay and so slowly over time they start to associate it with food um, and then by the end of it as soon as you put it in the water they make like a beeline right for it and they're like that means food so I'm going to go over there and none of the other animals react to it because you haven't been rewarding them so um, that was really cool. And it was super useful because they were really small and they were in a touch, uh, touch pool at the time. And then they were like a foot and a half long when I worked with them, but they're supposed to get to like eight to 10 feet long, something like that. So obviously they had to move out of the touch pool, um, and teaching them to like target feed made it so that we didn't have to like chase them around the exhibit, trying to like feed them. And it made it easier for when they started 
uh, stretcher training them, which is helpful for being able to like transport them to different exhibits and helpful for like uh, vet checkups and things like that. So it was like the kind of the first step of like acclimating them into life on exhibit, which was really cool. And like, they're huge now. They're like five or six feet long. And I'm like, I feel like such a proud fish mom. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then Megan, the question to you, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? Yeah, it's really hard to pick one. And as I'm listening to Amani and Jada, I'm just like, oh man, that makes me think of other similar experiences that I've had. I was super fortunate to like grow up on a freshwater lake. And then I moved to the Puget Sound in Washington where there's just so much wildlife up there and it's so accessible. So I'm really lucky. But I think the most memorable experience actually has to do with something that Amani asked asked me about recently, which was the first time you saw your first animal that you're working on for your research. And that has to be the most gratifying, memorable experience I have ever had because I, you know, framed this research question and I had a whole team out on the water that's like there to help me answer this question. And I felt the pressure of that, like putting all these people out there and the work and the time that it took to get us all agreed on this research question and everything like that. And then we were getting skunked for a while. Like we weren't seeing um, seven gill sharks, which is what I study. We weren't seeing them yet uh, because the adults only come in seasonally and we were looking for adults at the time. And I was really nervous about it. And I was like, what if they don't come in? Or, you know, of course they will, but um, we're not really sure what's going on with the population. So I was super, super nervous about it in general. And then when I finally found the first one and we had it up on our vessel and we got the samples that we needed and we were able to tag it, like that has to be the most memorable experience I've ever had. I remember every single person that was on that boat with me and exactly where we go went were and you know how that whole process went. And we only got one that day, but that's literally all that matters. And that's all it took to get that research started. And that has to be like the most gratifying, rewarding experience I've ever had. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like sort of, we we kind of mentioned it earlier on a completely different topic, but sort of that feeling of you're so like pent up and obviously worried and you, and you, you know, you've got a lot of stress because you really want this to go well. And then when it actually does, like that feeling is just so, so incredible. But then we do have a purpose of this podcast as well, which is to answer some questions um, about weird and wonderful shark species. So we do get these questions a lot through the Save Aussies Foundation. Um, And, you know, a lot of people want to know about sharks at extremes. So that is exactly what we're going to talk about just now. So we're going to go through a couple of these different questions. Um, So the first one that we have to answer is what is the fastest shark? in the world it is the short fin mako is the fastest shark uh there's also a long fin mako but the short fin is faster um they can reach bursts of speed up to 45 miles per hour um which is crazy to think about i'm like that's that's the speed limit in most like roads in the u.s so the fact that that's how fast they can swim is mind-blowing to me and also they're just gorgeous animals they look so sleek they look like torpedoes which is just perfect for like streamlining the water along their bodies so they can just go as fast as possible oh my gosh they're amazing I love them 
I was like, I just realized her background's a thresher shark. And I was like, oh, is that a Mako binder? <laughs> nope, it is a thresher. <laughs> the tail is a dead giveaway. I oh, yeah. know. I just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> Jada coming in with our animal facts. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> yeah, I actually read an article earlier that t- called them toothy torpedoes, which I really loved. <laughs> That's the only way I'm referring to them from now on. They get no other name. Toothy torpedoes. Yeah. I thought it was excellent. But yeah, so, so why why do they need to be so fast? Well, I mean, they, they uh, hunt things like tuna, which are fast, very fast. Um, so if you're chasing the fastest fish species that are out there, you also have to be one of the fastest. So I'm just looking at like the adaptations that they have to be as fast as they are. They don't reach as fast as some of their prey items which I guess makes sense otherwise their prey items might just be kind of out of luck but um I mean they've got like a keel on their tail to help reduce rag and um they have some degree of endothermy um which helps their muscles kind of like stay at like optimal levels so they can fire as fast as possible like they're just oh my gosh they're incredible animals (laughs) yeah I mean I think so there's actually been studies done on um their skin, right? So shark skin is actually believed to be modified teeth. So their skin, the scales that they have, have um, enamel over them, just like our teeth do. They don't experience drag in the way um, that other marine species and even people do. So this definitely helps them be able to move quickly through the water um, and make sharp turns and then not use as much energy as another species might. Um, Like a great white, for example, they're not known for like large bursts of speed that can last a decent amount of time. They're known for short bursts of speed when they need it to eat. Um, and so having sort of, you know, morphological adaptations similar to what Jada also mentioned about their tail, um, it's it only helps them in the lifestyle that they have where they eat tuna, which are extremely fast fish. I read somewhere that they actually designed some swimwear for humans that is actually based on uh, based on shark teeth to help people be more hydrodynamic which is really cool yeah and then they banned it oh they banned it it's yeah it's actually banned in a lot of um high school competitions like high school swimming competitions i can't speak to any sort of higher level swimming um but yeah they banned it because it actually can give you a large advantage um while you're swimming depending on the suit that you're wearing wow i did not know that yeah i actually just learned that the other day because i was speaking um, with a reporter who was like, yeah, I actually had one. And then they banned them in our competitions because it was like too advantageous to people. Goodness, I didn't, oh my God, they're super effective. Yeah, I, I, I might write that down on my shopping list actually to get a <laughs> shock tooth design hydrodynamic swimsuit. I imagine they're incredibly expensive and I probably can't afford one, but <laughs> yeah. never mind. Um, but yeah, so moving on from the fastest shark in the world, our next question is, what is the largest shark in the world? And I think this species of shark is probably a lot of people's favorite species of shark, actually. Jada is shaking. <laughs> yeah. They're so cute. Do you want me to say it? I'll, okay. Go for um, it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, the largest species would be the whale shark. Um, fun fact, the second largest is the basking shark. But uh, the whale shark is... Better shark what the whale shark is the better shark no the basking shark is the better <gasps> i agree with that oh thank you so much i, for saying I that. will third that i mm. mean they they breach they jump their gigantic bodies out of the water whale sharks don't do that yeah um, 
but whale sharks are cool they're filter feeders which seems like it doesn't make sense but like the largest animals on the planet are filter feeders and that's just the way the world works and it will never make sense to me but (laughs) yeah um whale sharks are cool because they they have like this polka dot pattern which is as unique as a human fingerprint uh for Mm -hmm. each individual so if you get a good enough picture of them like you can identify the specific individual which i think is really cool um and they do uh, active filter feeding, which means that they suck water in and just collect whatever's in the water. Whereas mm-hmm. basking sharks do passive filter feeding and they just open their mouths and swim around and hope for the best. Um, oh, and the coolest of- fact. Oh, sorry, what? The co- You're almost forgetting the coolest fact, which I think probably Amani is also gonna say. Yeah, no, I was just about to say, Amani, I think you should share the coolest fact. Yeah. Oh, about whale sharks? Yes. Yeah. Oh, this um, is exciting. Okay. Okay, <laughs> this paper came out this year. It's insane. Whale sharks have their like so shark skin. The 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 term for shark skin is dermal denticles. Um, super nerdy word. Sounds doesn't even sound like English. And whale sharks have that on their eyeballs, and it's super weird. Um, they have it basically like <laughs> surrounding the inner part of their eye. Um. And it's really freaking weird and it's like a new thing so no one really knows like why this is um but also like good thing they don't have eyelids because that would really hurt if you had to blink right? and you've also got like teeth say, on your eyeballs yeah i was gonna say not pleasant <laughs> yeah like, so, like they don't armor. have the yeah they don't have the like nictitating mag- membrane um that other species of sharks um like great whites for example have um where there's this membrane that goes over up over their eyes um when there's something near their eyes, it's just to protect them. Um, you can see them do this like when they're going for prey. A lot of times they'll cover their eyes right before they go after the prey. Mm-hmm. Um, and whale sharks do not have this. So in theory, um, the denticles and, and or teeth on their eyes um, could be for things like protection from parasites. It could be for things like protection from um, any sort of other fish that might get near their eyes. We really don't know like why they evolved to have teeth on their eyeballs but it's really cool it is really cool and so weird and that's why i love sharks <laughs> just because everything's so weird but i'm i'm so happy as well that you mentioned the baskin shark which is also the second largest species of shark um i mean i never talk about the baskin shark on this podcast but um but yeah but i was on another podcast talking about the baskin shark um and to me the whale the baskin shark is kind of like the the first model really of the whale shark so the whale shark's kind of got like a few a few updates so like jada mentioned the baskin shark is a passive filter feeder whereas the whale shark can actually suck water in um and i do think the baskin shark as well has like a slightly more prehistoric shape where the whale shark looks like it was just like designed better to do what it's meant to do yeah <laughs> whale shark is the tesla model and basking shark is a toyota corolla question mark Oh my god, I was yeah. just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is kind of why I love them so much. Okay, so I wanted to take a little uh, commercial break, <laughs> if you like, from the shark nerding and ask you guys about your research because each of you are about to either embark on a PhD or Megan, you've just started your PhD. And I I wanted to ask you guys kind of what your research is focusing on, because this is exactly why I invited you guys onto the podcast. Not only because you're all fantastic science communicators and you are 
amazing at uh, talking about sharks in a way that's that's fun and engaging, but also because you do study them as well. So I wanted to ask you guys a little bit about what your research questions actually are. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, so for my PhD, I don't have a specific species or anything just yet, but I have a lot of questions about movement ecology and habitat use in elasmobranchs and more specifically sharks. So I think like I'm I'm really interested in so you know how like you're walking down the street and you pass a stranger and you're like where are they going today? Are they going to go spend some time with a friend? Are they going to go pick up their kids? Do they need to go grocery shopping? What store are they going to go to? How are they going to get to the store? This is the way that I think about animals as well, which I mean, for better or for worse, I kind of just anthropomorphize them probably more than I should. But it kind of helps me think of these questions of like, well, how are solitary shark species finding each other for mating purposes? How are uh, different species using using oceanographic features like eddies and fronts um, and currents and things like that to find prey items or to migrate? Or how, how is migration affecting them? What's up with their energetics? Like, what is all the, these questions that we don't have answers for? Like Megan says, like, there's just so many questions that we don't have answers for. And what makes a scientist is really trying to find the answers to those questions. And so I just have all these questions of like, what is your life like? How do you go about your life? How are you finding the things that are going to help you survive? And there's so many different ways that you can answer those questions, but I'm going to be using most likely um, biologers. So looking at like magnetometer, accelerometer data, um, depth, temperature, time series kind of things um, and all that kind of stuff you can use to look at like migration and uh, position of the animal in the water column and like pitch and roll and yaw and all kinds of other crazy things. Um, and so those can kind of help answer some questions of like what kind of behaviors are we seeing? How are they navigating to find X, Y, and Z and all these crazy questions that are so hard to wrap your head around. Um, but yeah, so I'm very excited. I don't, again, like have a specific dissertation project just yet, but that's in the works. I have some, some fun ideas that I'm excited for. And so I'm, I guess I'm just, I'm so excited to get started because I know that the pandemic has made things kind of weird. And I, I, I feel like I've had kind of like a delayed first year where it's not, it feels like, oh, maybe you're not where you should be. But like, I feel like everyone feels like that this year. So it's really not that big of a deal. But I'm I'm so excited to kind of get started and start, you know, collecting the data that might help me answer some of these questions. So Jada's thing is like, you know, what are they, where are they going? Like, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Um, and I kind of see them from more of like a morphological perspective. So my PhD, which I haven't started yet, I'm starting in September, um, is going to look at you know, like sharks' bodies and why, like the way they look or how their skin is or how large their fins are um, is advantageous to them and how they go about living. Um, so like while Jada might be like, why is the thresher shark like going over here and going over there? My thing would be like, why is their tail so long? What about having their tail so long makes it so that they can like swim fast, eat, prey, things like that? Um, I'm specifically interested in shark skin because shark skin is super cool um, and it varies across species and across individuals um, and it's what makes them 
uh, is what gives them the ability to move through water so easily and not experience the drag effects that most other um, marine species and animals do. Um, so I kind of come at sharks and other um, animals in general with the question of like, what about their body makes it so that they can do the things that they need to do in their life? Mm -hmm. um, what about their body makes it so they're not using as much energy as another species would need to as they move through life? Um, and all of those kinds of questions relating to form and function. So I'm a little bit more similar to Jada, but I'm my PhD is specializing in conservation ecology. So I'm very interested in where sharks go, but I, I the, the specific aspect of my PhD is what does this species need to survive and thrive? So I'm looking at seven gill sharks, the broad-nosed seven gill shark, which is found worldwide. There's a lot of different areas in the world where you can find seven gill sharks. As far as we currently understand, those populations don't seem to cross the ocean and mix, as far as we know. And I believe the population that uh, I'm working on travels from Alaska to Mexico. So that's our population that I'm looking at. And with this population, the only place where we know that they breed is in Willapa Bay, Washington state. And the only place that they pup anymore where they come and have their babies that we know of is San Francisco Bay in California. And that also happens to be the only place in the entire world where you can readily find the pups, the juveniles and the subadults of seven gill sharks all in one single location and also be able to access the sexually mature adults that come in seasonally because the females come into the bay to, to pup out. And the males also come, which is interesting, mm -hmm. I find. Uh, we don't see mating scars on them in San Francisco Bay as much anymore. They might be breeding here as well, but I haven't necessarily seen evidence of that. So my question is, because we have access to every single age stage of this species, it's a really great location to ask what does each age stage need to get to the next size class and to survive until they're sexually mature and they can reproduce and participate back into the population? So I'm looking at some basic things. Broadnose seven gill sharks were data deficient until actually this last December, the IOC, IUCN red list just reevaluated them and they're now classified as vulnerable, which is the class right before extinct. And even when they're data deficient, I'll just be clear that it's not because we don't know anything about them. That's not what data deficient means. It just means that we don't know enough about them to know whether or not they're going to survive over a few generations. Um, so we need more information to know and be able to assess that population. So some of the things that I'm asking is, what does every size class eat? That's a pretty basic question to ask to know what an animal might need to survive. So I'm looking at a lot of different things about what they eat. I'm also hoping to look at where they move, similar to what Jada is doing. So I'm hoping to look at at least specifically the really small juveniles because they seem to have a very specific niche micro habitat within San Francisco Bay, which nobody has documented. So I'm trying to follow those pups and really document this is where they are. They seem to need this really critical habitat. We should maybe protect this one area so that they can survive that age stage and get to the next one. The last thing I'm looking at is, can they be safely recreationally fished? And this is something Amani and I talk about quite a bit. Um, you know, people fish sharks, 
And we can't necessarily criticize that. They're fish just like any other species of fish. And a lot of communities actually rely on shark fishing as part of their income or their food resources, especially in certain parts of the world. That's a really primary source of protein for them. And so there are ways to be able to sustainably fish sharks. And there are sustain there are current sustainable fisheries for sharks, which I know is very surprising for people. And I think people get kind of surprised to hear that from shark scientists, but it is true. And people fish seven gill sharks in San Francisco Bay. They eat them in the Bay area. It's a very common fishery. There are charters that go out and fish for seven gills. So I don't want to say and criticize those people because they're relying on it as part of their income. People also, again, eat them. So what's the difference between eating a shark and eating another fish? They're fish. Sharks are fish. So my question is, if we need to potentially protect certain individuals, like the pregnant females that are coming into pup, for example, or those neonate pups, no one wants to eat those anyway, and we should probably protect those animals till they get larger. And so maybe putting like a slot limit or a size limit on what people can eat. But one of the things I want to look at is, can you fish these over and over again? And can they, do they withstand the stress of being fished over and over again? So I'm taking a lot of different blood draws and seeing the, basically the stress, the physiological stress response to fishing to see how they basically respond to that. And if they can, which I anticipate, they probably are withstanding that pretty well, uh, but we need to prove that with science and empirical data. And if they can, then we can say, look, we might need to put a moratorium on this size class. However, you can continue to fish them. Just let them go and they'll be fine. And then we can support our local fishers while also protecting the species to persist. So that is a snapshot of a lot of the things that I'm looking at right now that I hope to answer in the next few years. Awesome. Yeah, I shouldn't have asked. I, I should never ask this question because then I, I always want to go back and do another PhD and <laughs> something different. Everyone's topic sounds so interesting. So yeah, super excited to see where, where all your research goes and to, to read your papers, you know, a couple of years down the line. Okay, so we have talked about the largest species of shark in the world, but I think it makes sense now to talk about the smallest species of shark. So what is the smallest species of shark in the world? I, I can take this one because I love these guys. Um, <laughs> the smallest species of shark is the dwarf lantern shark, um, which can actually fit in the palm of your hand. It is so small. Um, and one of my favorite things about them is that they have photophores, um, which emit light, and that helps them actually camouflage um, so that they look light with the sun um, or however much light is coming down, I should say, since they do inhabit uh, deep waters. But I think they're super cute, and I also love that they have photophores. <laughs> yeah, I I was gonna say I think that there's also the pocket shark is kind of like rivaling yes. the dwarf lantern shark for the smallest shark because both of them get no larger than like eight inches long or something like that. So again, can fit in your hand, and they are also bioluminescent, and they have like little pockets um, behind their pectoral fins, like like behind their armpits, literal pockets. Exactly. And it basically, these pockets like spit out bioluminescent goo. So just odd. Yeah. I don't even understand these sharks. Bioluminescent so goo. Yeah. It's my favorite scientific term. Yes. And f firing that out of your armpits as well. That's quite a bold statement. <laughs> yeah. Love that. Yeah, absolutely. And I did read about these animals is that they typically occur in, in deeper waters. So with the dwarf lantern shark, for example, you're talking about 
928 to 1140 meters 40 feet deep sorry um and you know still smaller than your hand and that is exactly why they need to glow in the dark so in actual fact we do have a question later on that asks do any species of shark glow in the dark um which actually rhymes and i didn't realize that um so maybe it makes sense then to talk about those species as we've already touched on a couple um so I think we've answered the question, do any species glow in the dark? Yes, indeed, they do. Yes, they definitely do. And one of the species that is local to my, I live right next to the Pacific Ocean, and there is the swell shark. And if you look at a swell shark, they actually also can glow in the dark, which is super, super cool. I think more sharks honestly do it than you might think. And that's the end of part one. You'll have to come back next week to listen to part two. We'll be taking a trip further into the deep sea and finding out why sharks glow in the dark. We'll also be chatting about the longest living species of shark and one species you really wouldn't want to eat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You'll be finding out more about Armani, Jada and Megan in the next instalment. But for now, you can follow Armani on at Kaylee underscore biologist at Meg Holst for Megan and Jada on at Sophistication. That's fish as in the animal. Also, be sure to look at minorities in shark sciences and minorities in aquarium and zoo sciences. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one and leave us a nice little review on iTunes. This just helps more people to find us. And if you would like a question answered on the podcast or just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saveourseas.com. A massive thank you to David Knight who provided our wonderful jingle and thank you as always to the Save Our Seas Foundation for supporting this podcast. All right, thank you and we will see you next time. 